Well, this morning we're going to talk about running, running the race. And um, I want you to imagine just for a moment that uh, you're sitting at your home and you're eating your Twinkie, having your milkshake, maybe an In-N-Out burger, and a group of people come to your door, they knock on the door, you open the door, and it just happens to be the uh, United States Olympic Committee. And they say, we've got some great news. We've been keeping tally on all of those that would possibly qualify for the marathon in the next Olympics. And the statistics of every person in the entire nation that we have on the computer out of out, boy, this really sounds like I'm really loud or something, so give me a, am I, am I okay about there? Okay, I won't worry about it then. 275 million people, you are the one that's been selected to run the marathon and bring home the gold for the United States. Yeah. You will run that race, you've been chosen. So needless to say, you're kind of surprised because you have not run more than to the mailbox and back. And when you got back, you were winded already. And your wife noticed as you were running back from the mailbox, as she, you came in, that you were dripping wet. And as you sat back in your lazy, your lazy boy, she said, did, did you go out for a run? He says, no, I just went to the mailbox and back. That was it. But imagine if you just start thinking about after the shock had passed and everything else. You know what? I could picture myself with the elite of the Olympians. Maybe I've been called to run this race. It begins to occupy your mind and your time, and you think, you start dreaming about it. I could be up on that podium. The national anthem is playing for the United States of America. I've won. The medal is, I can just see myself with a medal being put around my, my neck and, and just bringing home the gold for the United States. And... So you feel that rush of emotion and that uh, you start thinking to yourself, you know what, this is the race that I've, I've been meant to run and meant to run and this is my destiny and this is why I was born. This is, becomes your passion in your life. Everything that you do is surrounded about training for this race and thinking about it. All you can do is, is think about that, that you're going to win the Olympic gold for the United States, this is all of your existence. Everything, nothing else matters. Everything pales in comparison to that very one thing. And gets what, what gets you up out of bed in the morning, gets you going. And then you wake up. <laughs> then you wake up. And so I, the Bible talks about several places about us as believers that we've been called to run a race. And you say, you know what? I feel like I've been running the race. Feels like the rats have been running the race too. And I feel like the rats are kind of winning right now. But we get, uh, we have grandeur ideas of how we might run this race. And we have different thoughts in our mind. We talk about running the Christian race. And sometimes it can be like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know if I can endure this. How can I continue on? Am I going to make it to the end of the race? Am I going to finish? Am I going to get a prize? What's going to happen from this point forward? And so as a believer, we have been called to run a race. It's a, the lifetime that God has called us to. He has a purpose for us. It should dominate our thoughts. It should be the very reason for our existence. 
And so in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Sometimes it can get a little bit hard to understand if you don't realize what it's all talking about. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the Hebrews starts off and he describes this race. And he says this, if you've got your Bibles, your smartphones, you can follow along. And we're going to try to just go through some of these different things that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about as far as the race that we're running. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. There is a lot right there in those three verses. But before we start in this, in unpacking what this is all about, I want you to think about something. Whenever you read a book of the Bible or a passage of Scripture, one thing you have to keep in mind is what I call the three C's. The three C's, especially in reading the book of Hebrews, is what is the context? In other words, what's the whole portion of the scripture that is being taught or being spoken of? Then it's the cro to be able to cross-reference those scriptures. Is it just talked about in this one place or are there are other places that come along and back up what the writer is saying? That would be very important. And then the culture. Who's he writing to? What's the time? What's the period? What are the people dealing with at that time? What are they looking at? What are they going through at that time? So it's very important. Context, cross-reference, and culture. If we just take a portion of Scripture out of the Bible and just take that portion without knowing the context, the cross-reference, or the culture, it can be very dangerous. It's like one portion of Scripture, and you probably heard this before. It says that Judas went out and hung himself. Another portion of Scripture says, go and do thee likewise. You don't want to do that. So you don't want to put those two together. So it has to have the context, has to have cross-reference, has to have what the culture is about. And so in Hebrews, we really don't know who the author is. Some say it's a, Apollos. Some say it could have been Paul. Some say it could have been Luke. doesn't really matter. Whoever it was, though, that wrote the book of Hebrews, they knew a lot about Jewish traditions. They knew a lot about the temple. They knew a lot about blood sacrifice. They knew a lot about the goats and the sheep. They knew about a lot about the high priestly office that uh, was brought through the Le Levitical priesthood. They knew all of those things. So the writer knew the, the culture. And what the book of Hebrews was really written to and why it was written to the book of Hebrew, these Hebrew people was is that there was a danger that was going on and that was that these Jewish people, the Hebrews, that were probably in these gatherings that were happening. They didn't, probably, they didn't have church buildings like we have now, but these gatherings, there were those who had put their faith in Christ and Him alone. Then there were others that were in the Jewish community that were still going to the temple. They were still going through the sacrificial system, still offering bloods of bulls and goats. And what was happening was, is they were saying, well, I'm going to take Jesus, but I'm going to continue to go to the temple. I'm going to take Jesus. I believe he died. Yes, he was a good person, good moral person. He may have done all these things, but I still, I'm drawn back to my tradition, drawn back to the temple sacrifices, and I need to still do that. And so this is the context 
This is the culture surrounded what's being written in the book of Hebrews and also the scripture that we just talked about and opened up with. So the book of Hebrews is all about, if you want to take the whole context of what it's about, the writer of the Hebrews from chapter 1 all the way to the end is trying to show those who are struggling with trying to go back to the law, the ceremonies, all of those things, and struggling with finally saying, no, those don't count anymore. God's done with that. Jesus has finished it. He's paid the ultimate sacrifice as the Lamb of God on the cross, and it's finished, and it's final. The writer of the Hebrews is trying to express that to those who are questioning in their mind. Is Jesus, is Jesus the final authority? Or do we need to go back to temple? And we'll show how this works into our day today also. So Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 1, if you're following along, it says, Therefore, he starts off, since we're surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, what's he talking about here? We kind of get the picture as he's started chapter 12 of going back to chapter 11. You know, the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses We've done that so we can find where we are as go through. It was written as one complete letter. And so as he's starting these next thoughts, he's referring back to chapter 11, which we're not going to go through the whole thing. But he's talking about those who had gone before us and before them that were the heroes of the faith, the hall of famers. Chapter 11 is all about those Abraham and Moses and Joshua, Rahab, these great heroes of the faith. And it says, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith they did this, by faith they did that. All of these things they were going through. And these were the witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses that he was talking about back in Hebrews chapter 11. And so these cloud of witnesses, it says, they're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses since we're surrounded by these uh, cloud of witnesses, and oftentimes we think, well, maybe this cloud of witnesses, they're watching us as we're running the race. You ever thought that, that maybe Moses and, and Abraham, you know, they're looking down watching us as we're running this race? Well, I don't know about you, when I get to up to heaven, I don't want to look back and see what's going on down here. I just don't. So it's not like they can see what's going on because the Bible says there's no tears in heaven. They're not going to see the troubles that we're going through right now. There's peace and rest in heaven. So mainly what it's talking about is these witnesses are not witnessing our conduct of our lives, but they are witnesses to us of faith and endurance. In other words, they're inspirational to us. Look at what they did. Look how they walked. And so let's look at them so that it'll encourage us. They're kind of like they would do the TED Talks of today or whatever. Or maybe they come and give an inspirational speech or click on YouTube. You know how they have all these inspirational things. So he's saying, look back at chapter 11. All these people that persevered, endured suffering, sawn in two. They continue on and they finished and they went through and they kept their faith in God. Now at the conclusion of chapter 11, before we even get to chapter 12, there's an interesting verse that's there. It's very important. There again in context. After he's just listed all of these heroes of the faith, everything that they have done, remarkable things, endured such so many things. And he says this in Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. 
since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So these mighty Jewish leaders throughout all of the Old Testament, it says that they did not receive their reward. Why? Because Christ had not come yet. They were looking forward to something. They were still faithful in all that they did. But what a, it should, could have been a, must have been a shock to those in the Judy, Judaism circle when they read this. And it says all these people were commended for what they did, but they never received the final prize. They never got what their faith was looking forward to. Old and New Testament believers, it says in this verse, it says they're going to be glorified together that they would make be made perfect or complete. And so they look forward to the promise and what, what do we do? We look back to the promise. They look forward to the coming of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. We look back to the promise, but they never entered into that. And so those hall of famers, those great men and women of God, they don't have what you have here today. They don't have the new covenant. They don't have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit within them. They don't have the advantage of looking back at what Christ had done. They don't have the advantage of having all of their sins forgiven. They had to still go to the temple and have sacrifices made. Their sins was ever before them. They never felt like they were not guilty before God because every time they went to the temple, they had to bring a lamb. They had to, bring, they had to have it slain all over again. The blood had to be applied all over again. We don't have to do that. Our Bible says to us in Hebrews 10, 17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more for where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. In other words, it's finished. It's done. That's better for us, isn't it? Better than what they had. And you might think, man, if I could have just walked with God like David walked with God. If I could have just seen the miracles that Moses been a part of all of that. You ever think about that? Wow, what would have been like to hang out with a Hall of Famer like Joshua or something? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Do you know that you have greater promises and a greater relationship with God than the, what they had? The Holy Spirit would come. That's why David prayed. You ever wonder why David prayed, Lord, take not thy spirit from me because the Holy Spirit hadn't come to dwell with them, permanently with them. So you have the spirit that seals you, the spirit that lives inside of you that says, God says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. You don't have to pray that prayer in context like David, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He's not going anywhere because you've been sealed by him. Amen? So context is so important. Hebrews 10, 17. I just read it. Then it goes on after that. I should read it again, but it's so good. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The Amplified Version says this. Stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, stripping it off, throwing it off. The Greek word here for stripping off, a hindrance, a, an entanglement, is onkosh, which means, what you won't remember, it means bulk or weight, something that's heavy that ties you down. Kind of like when you're, maybe when you were dating in high school or you first meet someone, and the question that always came to mind is, okay, 
where's the baggage? And not only where's the baggage, but what's in the bags when you're thinking about a relationship? What's the heavy weight that's going to come in from the past? What's going to come in to encumber my relationship? And this is what this term is really getting at. And he's talking about, of course, as far as running this race, let us throw off everything that hinders the baggage, the weight, the heavy load that would hold us down from moving forward in the race that's before us. Now, the writer of the Hebrews, who's he writing to? Anybody? Not a trick question. The writer of the Hebrews, who's he writing to? Hebrews. He's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to those who were in, again, the context, writing to those who were within the fellowship. They may have not been believers yet. A lot of them weren't believers yet. They were on the fence about Jesus and all these type of things. So the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to Hebrews. And what he's trying to convey to them that those who are listening is, is this. If you're thinking about going back to Judaism, if you're thinking about going back to the legalism of the law and the temple and the sacrifices and all of those things and cross-referencing, and if you take the culture, the three C's, who's he writing to? Why is he writing it? What's the purpose of it? What was the whole deal? They were wanting to go back into and bring themselves under the encumbrance, the weight of the law that they could not live under anyway. But they were thinking about turning away from God's grace and turning back to legalism to try to please God by their good works, by their sacrifices, by trying to keep 630 of the Old Testament laws, not just 10, 630. Is that a weight? Is that a heavy load? Because he's the writer of the Hebrews is saying, if you are turning back, you're going to bring all of the weight of the law, of the ceremony, all of those things back on you. How are you going to run the race that God has for you if you're trying to go back and be hindered by the law, by the ceremony, by the temple, by Judaism? They were doubting the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. And so the sin that so easily entangled them. Now, we've read this verse. I've read it a million times. And we, think, we tend to think of, well, that sin that easily entangles me. Yeah, that's, you know, I shouldn't have spoke to that person this way. Or, you know what, I, I did this or I did that. You know, we think of a sin. I'm trying to get rid of this sin, this sin, this, this thing. You know what the sin was? All the way up, the only sin that was talked about from Hebrews chapter 1 all the way up to this point. It wasn't that you smoked or you drank or you did this or you did that or you had love. No, the sin all the way up to this point in context was unbelief. The big sin that separated them from God, that entangled them, that ensnared them was the sin of unbelief. They did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he was going to do. They were still wavering and wanting to go back to the old way of temple sacrifice. It's the only sin mentioned all the way up to chapter 12. Go ahead and look it up. So what's he saying? He's saying, lay aside, throw off everything, 
that is hindering you. All of those things that you thought were so, was going to get you into good standing with God, you've got to throw that off and run the race that's before you. And the focus of the race now, before the focus of their race was going to the temple, the focus of their race was trying to keep... 630 laws. Focus of their race was trying every single year going back for the Day of Atonement. That's what it was all about. They were warned. That's why Jesus said, any of you that are weary and heavy laden, come to me and you will find rest. Why did he say that? Who did he say in the context of that? The scribes and the Pharisees were still trying to pile the law on top of them. Jesus says, come to me if you're weary, you're heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's what he's talking about here. You can only be free if you come to me. This kind of puts into focus another letter that was written to the Galatians. We know who wrote to the Galatians. It was the Apostle Paul. They were having the same exact problem. Again, three C's. What are they? Context, cross-reference, culture. Paul wrote to the Galatians. In chapter 3, he said this, You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who's like put a spell on you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. He's getting kind of sarcastic here. Just tell me something. Did you receive the Spirit? You see how this is? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? In other words, by keeping the Ten Commandments, by going to ceremony, by going to the temple, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Again, he says, after beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish? Again, finish your race. Are you trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Context, cross-reference, culture. Galatians had the same exact problem. They were thinking about going back to the temple, going back to ceremony, going back to their good works in order to be approved by God. Do you see how that may relate to a lot of different religions today? See how that relates even our own life right now? We think that somehow our good works, our good deeds somehow gains us access to God. He says, are you so foolish that you started by faith, that you started in the Spirit? Now you're going to try to run this race and endure this race in your own strength, and your own works? He said, you didn't begin that way. You're not going to finish that way. So he says, then let us run with perseverance, endurance, the, the race that's marked out for us. Endurance and patience. So once we've come to this understanding of what the race is, he says, now endure Continue to press on in what God has called you to do. That means don't be deflected any longer. Don't be going a different direction. Don't go be going back to the temple. Don't be going back to try to law keeping. Don't go back to the ceremonial things. You've got to keep your eyes in the right place. And this is what he says. Paul spoke of this race in Acts 20, 24. He says, Here I consider my life worth nothing to me. He says, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus had given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul pictured himself as a runner. He wanted to finish the race. He wanted to finish this race. And what was the race all about for Paul? 
He says, I count everything else, I, everything else is done. Nothing else matters to me. I'm going to finish this race. And what is the race? What is the task? The only task that he had is testifying of the good news of God's grace. That was his task. That's why he was running. Had nothing to do with his behavior. Had nothing to do with any of those. The task that he had sent out before that God wanted him to run was the task of testifying of God's grace. Refused to be deflected. I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was stoned. He was spat upon. He was thrown in prison. Nothing deflected him from what the task was, and that was to finish the race of, of pursuing and testifying the good news of God's grace. So where's our focus as we run this race? How do we run this race in order to finish? It says this in verse, chap in verse 2, chapter 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The only way that we can finish this race, the only way we can keep going is where our, is where our focus is and if we keep our focus on Jesus. To turn away from everything else and put our focus on him. I love this quote by, by Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He said, fix not thy gaze. He was a preacher back in the 1800s. Fix not thy gaze upon the cloud of witnesses. They will hinder thee if they take away thine eye from Jesus. Look not on the weights and the besetting sin these thou hast laid aside. Look away from them. Do not even look upon the race course or the competitors, but look to Jesus. And so start the race. Isn't that good? Don't even look at the competitors. Don't even look at the witnesses. Don't even look at the course that you're on. He says, look to Jesus. I didn't run a lot of track, but I ran some track. I played more. I played basketball and baseball in school. But I know when I ran, and if anybody's running, if you're a runner, how many, you know, you don't run a race like this. Because what's going to happen eventually? Most likely, you've seen it on, you know, you're gonna, somebody who wasn't watching, they're going to run into a pole. They're going to run into, they're going to, and I was always fascinated. I never did do the hurdles, the high hurdles or anything like that. But I've watched the Olympic competition. I can't believe how they can just continue, just run as fast as they can. They're looking forward. Their eyes are up, and they're, they run over those hurdles. And what happens as, as they run over those hurdles when they knock one over? What do they do? They keep going. Do you ever see a hurdler that was in a competition when he knocked over the hurdle, stopping, looking at the hurdle, and then going and try to pick up the hurdle? And then just imagine if he went to the next hurdle, he knocked that one over, and he stopped. He looked at the hurdle, picked that hurdle back up, went to the next one, stopped. It's, it would be ridiculous. But how many times isn't that what we do? We come across something in our lives. We hit the hurdle. Instead of keeping our eyes and keep on running and saying, I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm going to look to Jesus. He's going to be my focus. What we do is we stop. We look at the hurdle. Try to inspect the hurdle. Well, I wasn't expecting that hurdle. Wait a minute. Jesus said there's going to be trouble in this life. But I just need to inspect this hurdle. And after all, I need to try to fix the purpose and why that hurdle tripped me up. And so we try to focus so much on the hurdle 
when really all we need to do is keep our eyes on Jesus and keep running. Amen? We become so entrenched in whoa, what, looking at the course and, and looking at the hurdles and looking at the things that are around us that we get our eyes off of Jesus. But we need to keep on running. This is the reason why. It says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Keeping our eye on Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. He is the reason why we're going to, he started this thing inside of us. He's going to finish the thing that we're going through. Philippians 1, 6 says this, being confident of this, that he who began a work, good work in you, will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ. We are confident that God is going to continue to carry us through this race that's before us. So Jesus is there at the starting line with us. He's there during the middle of the race when it seems like we want to give up. He's there at the end of the race. He says, I'm going to complete this work that I've started inside of you. Then it goes on to say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this is where this really starts getting good right here. It says, for the joy that was set before him. Now the I don't know about you, but the cross does not seem to me to be a picture of joy. But for Jesus, it says the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He looked past the horror of the cross. He looked past the pain. He looked past that he was going to be separated from his father. And he looked to you. He looked at what the reward was going to be. That's you and I sitting. Did you know that Jesus endured that cross then because he had the picture of you right here this morning in his mind? And so he endured it for us. And so what the writer of the Hebrews is saying to those that were sitting and listening to this in the context of where they were going through and what they're going through. He's saying, take this same mentality, you Jewish Christians, and endure those, of the, those who are coming in trying to infiltrate your ranks. Endure the hardship, the persecution, the things you're going through by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. It says that he scorned its shame. Scorned its shame. For the joys before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, that means that he disregarded the shame. There was shame that was associated with the cross. There was shame of one who had been convicted of a capital crime in that time. The cross was a place of shame. Those around him, they yelled, crucify him. Here he was, the innocent son of God. They mocked him. They spat upon him. What kind of shame that much have brought upon him knowing that he was the son of the living God. He could have called 10,000 angels like the song says to come and rescue him. But he put aside the shame. Put aside and scorn the shame. And it says then, this is a really important part. It says he sat down at the right hand of God. Endure the cross, scorn the shame, and then it says he sat down at the right hand of God. Now this is not some trivial remark that the writer of the Hebrews is making at this point. Well, he's saying, oh, he just sat down. The context, the cross-referencing, the culture, all the way from the book of Hebrews, from the first chapter all the way through, it's showing the priesthood is talking about 
the old covenant, the sacrifices, the blood that had to be spilled, the ceremony, all of those things are leading up to what's happening here in chapter 12. It says that he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he finished his work. We're going to get to a couple of verses on this in just a minute. He finished his work. There's kind of a picture of creation. Remember when God, it says in Genesis, he created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it? Created all the animals, the galaxies, all of those things, six days. At the end of the six days, Adam and Eve show up on the scene. Seventh day, it says that God rested. So when Adam and Eve showed up on the scene, what did they do? They looked around. Yeah, we all know they messed up. But first, when they first looked around, everything that was there, everything was beautiful. All the animals were made. All the sky, the sky everything, the, the land, the rivers, the lakes, all of those things were there. And what did Adam and Eve have to do? God says, um, I want you to go name a few animals. So Adam, yeah, it's a giraffe. We'll call him George the Giraffe. So they kind of went through. They named a bunch of animals. It says on the seventh day, God rested. So God, what? He prepared everything for them. Everything was done. It was finished. All they had to do was sit back and say, wow. Look what God has prepared for us. Look at the paradise that is here for us to enjoy. Fast forward two thousand or thousands of years later, Jesus comes on the scene, preaches for 30, preaches, lives for 30 years, the end of his three years of his life, finally culmination in the cross, hangs upon the cross, is mocked, goes through and endures the cross, goes into the grave, comes out of the grave on the third day, and where are we? We're, we kind of come in at the fourth day. The stone's rolled away. Jesus has already finished his work. It's done. It's finished. He died. He rose from the grave. And so what is our response? Whoa. God, what do you want me to do now? You've already, you've already done everything. What's God's response to us? Why don't you just enjoy what I've already done? Why don't you enjoy what I paid for for you? You didn't have to do anything but say, Wow, thank you, God. And go live your life and run your race. That's what God does. He prepares everything for us. The price was paid, except the done. All we can do is say, God, thank you for what you've done. And God says, now go tell others about how good this is. That's what it really comes down to. That's what the race is all about. I've already done it all. I finished the work. Now you go tell others about this great news. Go share with others what I've done for you. But we get so bogged down in the hindrances and the encumbrances of everything that's going on. Oh, I hit that hurdle. God says, just continue on. It's done. And this is why he says this. Go enjoy what I've done. It says that he sat down. When he sat down, he finished something that he will never do again. Hebrews 1, through the first first. Verses Hebrews 1 through 3, the whole first part of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, all of this is talking about what Jesus did. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, after he had done it, after he had shed his blood, it says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
He sat down at the majesty of heaven. Hebrews 10, 11 through 13, it says this. Day after day, every priest, what? Stands. There was no chair in the temple. There was no place for, the, for them to sit down. Why? Because they were never done. It had to be done over and over and over again. Priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can what? Never take away sins. Context, cross-reference, culture. Telling these Hebrews, don't you see? The priest, is the thing you want to go back to? They have to continually offer the sacrifices. There's no chair. There's no sitting down. Again and again and again, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Jesus isn't getting up and down Jesus isn't re-sacrificing every time that you sin. His blood, it was done once and for all. It says he sat down the one time sacrifice for sins. Can you say praise God for that? Amen? One time, he says it's finished. Now when you read, for instance, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Context, cross-reference, culture. It says, for it's by grace, God's, this is the amplified version, it's for by grace, God's remarkable compassion and favor drawing you to Christ, that you have been saved, delivered from judgment, and, and given eternal life. That's what it means to be saved. No more judgment for you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Through faith. And this salvation, delivered from judgment and given eternal life, is not of yourselves, not through your own effort, not through going back to the temple, not by doing sacrifices, not by keeping the Ten Commandments, not of yourselves, but it is the undeserved gracious gift of God, not as a result of your works nor your attempts to keep the law, so that no one will be able to boast or take credit in any way for his salvation. Do you see how context, cross-reference, and culture works? In interpreting the scripture, these Jews who listen to this, that what do you mean he sat down? What do you mean that it's finished? What do you mean that there's no more sacrifice that we don't have to go back? This is what they were grappling with. This is what they were trying to figure out for their lives. Then verse 3, we're going to finish up here. It says this, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such opposition. Again, he's writing to Hebrews. He's writing to those that were in this culture of ceremony. So why do we consider him who endured such opposition from sinners? The hostility that he endured. He says, consider Jesus and what he went through. Of course, we know the hostility that was towards Christ. They called him a blasphemer. They called him a drunkard. They called him a, a sinner. They called him a false prophet. They called him a liar. They eventually crucified him. And so they say, consider Jesus. Why? Because they were being hostily talked about as they were going to these meetings. 
If they said that they were going to follow Christ, they had their neighbor on their right, the neighbor on the left, and said, come on, what are you doing? We've saved a bull and a goat for you. Let's go to the temple. Come on, bring your family. You, you've grown, you're Jewish. This is your culture. This is your heritage. You mean you're going to walk away from your nationality? You mean you're going to walk away from who you are? You're going to walk away from your culture and your family and your friends to follow this Jesus? Come on, let's go back to the temple. Let's go back to the sacrifices. Let's go back to the keeping and trying to keep the 630 laws. Doesn't that sound appealing to you? Let's go back to trying to get and work for our salvation before God. And so this is what these Hebrews were, were looking at. Come on, get your sins forgiven over here. Run with us. Quit being a Moses, Moses basher. Come on, over here. And so the pressure was on them. It says, Jesus endured the shame, the cross, the wrath of his father. So the, the execution upon the cross, the denial of his friends. And it says, consider him when these people are coming around you and trying to talk you into going back into this way of life. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt, do you feel the heat, maybe the heat on right now as you're running this Christian life race, as you're trying to live by the truth, trying to speak the truth? And maybe your family, your friends, and say, you know, we don't, want, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear about Jesus. Why can't you just come and just be like us? You know, have you felt the rejection of trying to share the truth with some of your friends or family? Maybe you try to st stand up for Christ on the job or at school, and they don't want to hear it. And if you do talk about it, they say, we're, we're just going to cancel you. We're not gonna, we don't want to hear you. We're going to ban you from Facebook, and we're going to take you off of YouTube. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if I got banned or not. I think we still may be running, I'm sure. But here's what First John, John wrote to, in First John, he says, Do not, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters. He says, if the world hates you. Why? They don't like the message of Jesus. And it's not only because they want to continue in their sin, it's because they don't want to accept the fact, and this is the hardest thing for most people to accept the fact is that Jesus sat down, the work is finished. Most religions in the world, they want you to try to work for it. They want to do this, you got to, you got to keep this, you got to do this, you got to go here, you got to do that. And it's really hard to talk about the grace of God, unmerited favor in the midst of all those things. That's what's being rejected. That's what these Jews were rejecting. It wasn't, a lot of these Jews, they weren't really having a big, maybe like we think of, sin problem. These were devout followers of the Jewish, Jewish traditions. They were trying their hardest to live good and live right and the whole picture of the book of Hebrews was showing them it, it's not going to be enough. You can't go back to the temple and get your sins. Guess what? The temple's done with. The sin sacrifice is done with. It's finished. It's over. It's done with. And so when the opposition is coming to you and you're running your race, 
the task that God has for you, what the Bible says and what Hebrews is saying, consider Jesus. Look to him when you're getting weary. Consider Jesus when you're mocked. Consider Jesus when you're discouraged. Consider Jesus when you're depressed. Keep your eyes and your focus looking to Jesus when it seems like you've got nowhere else to turn, when your friends are abandoning you, when it seems like the family's not supporting you. It says, keep looking at Jesus. Don't look to them for the support. Don't look for, to people and to be encouraged. If you come to church, a lot of people come and say, well, nobody said hello to me. Well, you're looking for people to keep you going on? If you are, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Look to Jesus and him only. And you'll be restored. You'll feel like I have been born to do this. This is a race that God has for me, and I will finish this race. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. We can be thankful for the heroes of the faith. Be thankful for all those men and women that went before us. But he says, don't look at them even. Look to me and me alone. I finished the work. And I've done it for you. Philippians 3, this is the closing verse. This is what Paul says. It's not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. He says, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to be been taken hold, hold of it. He says, but one thing I do. I'm forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He says, I put everything else aside and I'm pressing on. Amen. So my word of encouragement to you today in context and cross-reference in culture is, number one, Jesus, like we sing that song, Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has lost its crimson stain. His blood has washed me white as snow. It's done. It's finished. Rest in that and run with that. Let's all stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ and for your amazing grace and how sweet the sound is, Lord, that saved wretch like us. God, I pray if there be someone here this morning that doesn't know you, would they come to the realization today by the illumination of your Holy Spirit that's speaking to them right now that they can turn to you. They can be forgiven for all of their sins, past, present, and future. You sat down. You made the offering. You secured their security. They can have eternal life this morning as they place their trust and their confidence in you. So God, may they make that decision today. Lord, we as believers, may we continue to put our focus, our attention, our looking, our fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Whatever may be entangling us, ensnaring us, may we cast it aside and be free to run the race that you've set before us. We'll give you the praise. We'll give you the thanks. We'll give you the honor. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, great day. Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org.